Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. The close of the Handel and Haydn Society's 2021-22 season also marks the close of an era for us. This final concert is artistic director Harry Christopher's last in that capacity. After 13 momentous years at the helm, Harry will become conductor laureate, which means he won't be a stranger, much to our collective delight, and I am grateful that Harry is joining me here today to look not backwards at his time here, but forwards to the end of the season concert featuring Haydn's masterwork, The Creation. Harry, thank you so much for joining me again. Yeah, great to be here, Guy. So this is your final concert conducting H&H as our artistic director, though we all hope it's not your last concert here. (laughs) So you've chosen uh, Haydn's Creation as the work to perform. I'm curious if there were other choices for what to conduct as a going away present to Boston, or was the creation easily the obvious choice? Uh, The absolutely obvious choice for me. I mean, you know me, I like to smile, and the creation (laughs) is a work to smile by. You know, my years at H&H, I sort of regard the creation as my finest moment with you all when we recorded it. I think was it 2015? Something like that, yeah. I think it was for the bicentennial. And, uh, I, you know, I just thought as a whole organization, we sort of came of age and it was such a delight. And uh, I'll never, never forget those two concerts we did at Symphony Hall. Nor will I. It was absolutely wonderful. What is your history with the work? When did you first hear it? When did you first perform it? Well, I, you know, do you know, when I was at school, I used to try and sing one of the tenor arias, uh, not terribly well. You know, we did it in English in those days, in native worth. But then at Westminster Abbey, when I left university, I sang Westminster Abbey as a tenor for six years before I decided I didn't want to sing anymore. But during those years, and this is wonderfully relevant to H&H, really, there was a guy called Simon Preston that took over the music at Westminster Abbey in my last two years there. And he had a, a very good association with uh, one Christopher Hogwood. And... Uh, Chris had relatively recently started the Academy of Ancient Music and we did a tour of France and Switzerland of a certain piece called Creation by Haydn. Um, very early days of Academy of Ancient Music and uh, some of the playing was, was, 
was not maybe of the best standard we know today. But, you know, we've got to remember, you know, that was those pioneering days when people were grappling with oboes and clarinets and and all sorts of things. And and I remember Catherine McIntosh because she led it. I remember her being interviewed a few years ago and, and talking about those very early days of Academy of Ancient Music and just saying, you know, we were being paid to learn how to play this music. And it was just a most amazing experience. This was all new to everybody. And uh, as I said, they weren't necessarily the greatest of performances, but that was my introduction to um, creation as a whole. I love that it coincided with the very beginning of of at least the widespread recognition of the early music movement because that's that's the beginning those were as you said the pioneering days they were but you know honestly guys they were pretty off i mean we joke about it now but the abbey choir the men we used to have a book we used to sort of bet a couple of francs or something in those days before the euros <laughs> on uh, whether the clarinetist in the opening chaos would reach <laughs> the top note or would he even start would he crack on the way up there were all sort of permutations and somebody won each night because it was never perfect <laughs> <laughs> wow okay we'll we'll edit that out because he's listening yes. all right <laughs> so in preparation for today i did a little reading about the work and learned quite a bit including that haydn was apparently inspired to compose the creation after hearing some of handel's large-scale English oratorios like Israel and Egypt, which we have also done here. And he certainly presents a large-scale work. He uses an orchestra that's as large as any available at that time. I'm wondering if there's any... I mean, you know, you have such a rapport with English language oratorio. Some of my most memorable moments over the last 13 years have been with you conducting a Handel oratorio. And I'm wondering if there's anything about the creation that can be informed by your deep experience with Handel oratories, even though they are written for smaller forces, smaller ensembles. Yeah, I mean, you're quite right. Of course, you know, Haydn was greatly inspired by Handel, and it was those sort of big performances of Israel, Egypt and Messiah that he'd heard when he was in London. And he was very much carrying on that oratorio feel, and what better than to do creation? I mean, it's interesting that because it's always believed that the libretto was actually given to Handel, and it's something he never got round to doing. And the story is that uh, Haydn was presented with this. He'd been so inspired by Handel's oratorios that he wanted to write something himself. I think it's attributed to Van Sweeten, isn't it, that he mm-hmm. uh, said, what about starting with this one, Genesis? And he thought, well, that's a good idea. You start at the beginning, which I think is a lovely anecdote. But uh, yeah, I mean, Haydn's just gone a lot further, hasn't he? He's used the basis of an oratorio idea of a mix of orchestral items, arias, a few restatives, and not as many choruses as, say, uh, in Messiah or indeed Israel and Egypt. But the legacy of Handel is very much in, in Haydn's mind. I find it Fantastic. I mean, I I love the way, you know, Haydn just takes us that step further, more in orchestration than anything else, Mm. because the orchestration is just incredible. I'd love to have been in that audience, the first performance of Creation, when the orchestra start that first movement. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, you think of this person that was writing all these wonderful, wonderful symphonies, but actually he just goes a stage further. The wide range of dynamics, the way the strings have those sort of offbeat leans on the forte chords and the clarinet is bubbling underneath that. And then you get that clarinet cadenza. It's almost like hearing um, Gershwin, you know, the glissando in Gershwin mm. Rhapsody in Blue. 
it's quite incredible. Yeah. It must have had the same impact to people as, as Stravinsky writing The Rite of Spring. I'm sure that there were the people who have hated it, but also people have said, well, what the heck are we listening to? This is just amazing. That's exactly what happened. Apparently, I've read several accounts from people who were at the premiere. One said that he's writing a week after and his chest is still constricted with emotion when he thinks about that performance. It was so moving to him. And another talked about the moment in the beginning, the, 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 the very beginning when the words, there shall be light, and I'm not going to give it away so our mm. listeners enjoy it at the performance, but at that moment, something extraordinary happens. Or and there was light, right? Those are the words. And Yes, there was light, yes. Apparently, the Viennese audience was so just shocked by what they had heard. They started talking to one another. The orchestra had to stop for about 10 minutes while people calmed down a bit. They loved it. It was just something they had never heard before. And uh, that's kind of hard to imagine today. Can you imagine oh. a, a sound you've never heard before? It's it's kind of hard to do. And it's weird, isn't it? I mean, there's another account of a listener saying, you know, they'd never left the theatre more contented in their life and, and their dream yeah. to creation of the world. It's absolutely staggering. I mean, we know how good he is because we've done all the Paris symphonies now over the last few years. We're entering the London symphonies and we see him being more and more inventive, not only in his string writing, but actually also in the wind writing is just staggering and you know the, the wind players have a field day in creation the solo writing is just idyllic yeah and challenging i mean it's a real masterclass in, in orchestration it's it's like a bolero it gives you basically everything you can possibly do yeah at that point in time yeah doesn't it just right? i can't remember who the conductor was there's a very famous big symphonic conductor who was asked you know why don't you perform haydn and he said it's too difficult for modern orchestras and it's something that i really believe that you know, our world of historically informed practice and, and playing on period instruments has actually released Haydn from a stodgy performance style into something that is electric. And, uh, you know, when all the strings are asked to skedaddle around their instruments like nobody's business, they really do. And it, it's electrifying. But also when we play with incredible sustained long phrases, you guys have the most wonderful moment, don't you, with the uh, God created great whales. And then suddenly the violas and cellos and, and double basses have, oh. a, have a, you know, what is it, 12 bars long of just sheer beauty. It's terrific. As you mentioned, the work is based on a poem that Haydn was handed. I believe it was an English poem. And then, indeed, von Swieten, Baron von Swieten of Mozart fame, adapted it. He was a German speaker, as was Haydn, and they created a German libretto that attempted to mimic the original English. At any rate, the work is designed to be performed in either language. Have you had the opportunity to perform it in German? Yes, I think I very first performed it in German, all with modern orchestras. I did it once with the BBC Philharmonic in Manchester and then uh, abroad in Spain a couple of times. And I think I've done it once with the 16, actually. That was a very long time ago. The language is gorgeous. I mean, the German language is wonderful to sing in. The text is from the Psalms. It's from Genesis. It, it's also Milton. Mm -hmm. And we do know that Haydn wrote with the two texts sort of side by side. I think he himself said that actually he wanted the work performed in the language that was appropriate for the country, whatever language that country spoke in. But uh, the great thing is it works in both. You know, there's a lot of additions out there, particularly of the English text, because the German is very straightforward. And people have sort of struggled with the English text and tried to take it back to what they think was the original or tried to make a translation of the German that fits. But same with Handel, you know, 
English wasn't Haydn's first language. So, you know, there are things that we've changed in rehearsals a little bit just to make the syntax work better. Do you find any, for lack of a better word, a different sort of emotional delivery from different languages? Do you feel like he's able to retain the same message in both? I think he does, yeah. He's a master of both. I mean, there's one aspect of creation that is, I think, unique up to Haydn's time. It was the way that he, I mean, the work is all about word painting from beginning to end. Mm. But unlike Handel, the word painting in the instrumentalist would happen after the vocalist has sung the words. Here in Haydn, it happens before. So, you know, when he's talking about the tiger or, or the lion roaring, the lion roars before we get the text. The tiger is leaping before we get the text. And the stag is, the antlers are working away and neighing. That's so exciting. So the vocalist behaves as sort of an explanation of what you've just heard. Absolutely, yeah. So you've alluded to the chorus and... I've counted them. There are about 34 movements, out of which 10 are choral, and that is a smaller ratio than the works you mentioned, Israel and Egypt, Messiah. I'm curious about the role of the chorus. So we have soloists singing in any number of combinations, uh, solo arias, duos, trios, recitatives, and then you have the chorus. Is there a particular role for the chorus here in a similar way to, for instance, Bach's Passions? Or how does Haydn use the chorus? It's a much, much simpler role, really. I mean, it's a bit like a Greek chorus, you know, just commenting and accentuating what has just happened before. And you mentioned, actually, that, of course, some of the choruses utilize soloists. So, you know, you have the Achieve It Is The Glorious Work is actually that chorus frames a lovely solo movement in between. And that's very much a feature of the way, um, you know, Haydn's constructed it. And then there are fantastic moments where you've got the soloist starting as a trio and then the chorus are coming in, just replenishing those words, reinvigorating them. I suppose, yes, acting as a Greek chorus, just affirming what's happening. They never take a role of actually giving us any um, narrative as such. So I'm accustomed to the belief that a good composer only repeats something if there is meaning to it, if there's a purpose in the repetition, sort of a rhetorical way. You don't repeat anything unless you really have to. And so if the chorus repeat and replenish what the soloists have just done, maybe it's also just an added color. Yeah. I mean, there are moments when they are the heavenly host. The tenor introduces them, proclaiming the third day, and the heavenly host then utters the words awake the harp and that's the big chorus that ends the third day it's a very clever simple structure with the chorus ending each of the days in a very special way and the one i referred to earlier is that is the lord is great with the three soloists you know start the trio working and then the chorus come in and you've got this extraordinary parts where haydn has written amazing coloratura for the soprano and tenor having to fight over the chorus it's a wonderful tussle but again i mentioned it right at the beginning you know you just smile when you're conducting this when you're playing it when you're singing and when you're listening you just can't avoid grinning all over your face because it's such ebullient music. And despite the simplicity, there are some choral fugues. Is that, is that correct? Certainly are, yeah. Quite a few of them, actually. None uh, as great, really, as the very final chorus when uh, you know everything's happened. The Adam and Eve sequence has all been introduced to us. And then the tenor soloist Uriel says to us all, oh, happy pair, etc. Always happy yet. And then we have this final big statement uh, Sing the Lord, you voices all. And uh, it starts in this slow manner, 
very um, majestic, and then suddenly we're in the most fantastic fugue, out of which comes a, a florid amen. And he brings in, mm. <laughs> what does he bring in? The alto solos for, I think it's what, four bars, is it? Two sets of two bars. I always feel very sorry for uh, whoever's got to step out the front to join the other trio. That's right, because the main soloists are, well, it's a soprano and a bass, is it? Yeah, soprano and bass are Adam and Eve in the, in the sort of final part, and then soprano, tenor, and bass are the three uh, archangels in the beginning. And and the alto comes out of the chord. Alto, yeah, yes. I mean, it has been known in the past for uh, certain famous soloists to uh, be booked for just those four bars. Some have decided <laughs> to not accept the, the fee, and some have decided yeah. to. <laughs> well, so I wonder about these fugues, and I, I hope you don't mind me asking about trade secrets, and especially difficult mm. to answer, perhaps, without having a chorus in front of us. Mm. Having no vocal training, I'm just curious how you go about rehearsing something like a fugue or a particularly complex choral moment. What are you looking for from your chorus? Well, the fugues, I mean, again, Haydn is very much like Handel. Handel, you know, repeats and repeats a text over and over again. How do you keep that interesting? How do you make it not just one big long crescendo? Obviously, you know, a lot is down to the composer who's writing it and Haydn is exemplary in the way he uh, writes it. But one basic thing is that the fugue subject is always important, and that should always be slightly dominant through the texture. If you take the very last chorus, the fugue subject is the Lord is great. And then around that, you have an Amen, which is florid and is like, um, it, it's sort of what I would call tracery. It's the same as you would see in a painting. Uh, you, you, you concentrate on the central figures and then there's all the wonderful landscapes or, or buildings around that. So it's that same sort of idea. And I think the secret for me is that you have to have not only ebb and flow, but you also have to maintain light and shade. And, and you know me, I, I often mention those terms in, when we're rehearsing. And these very long fugal choruses, you've got to take the, the listener a couple of steps and then you bring them back a step, then you take them a couple of steps further, and then you're using the music to to reach its natural uh, climax. Uh, but you've got to keep the interest there. And we just use basic principles, um, the principle of architecture. Uh, as we know, the whole of all this music is based around the architectural phrase. As the phrase goes up, we would naturally crescendo. As the phrase comes down, we naturally diminuendo. So we try and find that geography within each um, sort of melisma. So melisma being quite a number of notes to uh, to a syllable. Um, and, you know, the singers must actually sometimes sing instrumentally and the, sometimes the instrumentalists must sing in a vocal way. So we've got two things going on all the time. And just, as I say, it's keeping that interest and that detail there and making sure that everybody... They are doing exactly the same thing each time that phrase or that pattern appears. Uh, if they don't, then the thing just becomes um, just becomes a sound without any detail. And finally, I wanted to ask you what you were hoping a listener uh, will walk away from this performance with. You know, they can't have the benefit that the Viennese did in the 1790s when they first heard this of of never having heard sounds like this. But what do you hope they leave with? I think they will leave with the same idea because I think the sounds that come out of the H and H Orchestra are so new. I mean, I've always said this. And one thing about having period instruments playing is we make this music sound new, and and full of vitality. 
I was doing an interview with somebody the other day and uh, they were talking about H&H &H and how wonderfully physical they are on stage. And that that's also part of it, you know, that we do engage with the music. We're not just playing the notes on the page or singing the notes on the page. We're, we're absolutely at one with it. And that to an audience will, will really come over. And of course, the greatest thing for them all is they're hearing the most fantastic word painting probably ever set to music. I mean, the way Haydn depicts everything in this through creation of the world in all these the number of days is is just absolutely electric the dynamic range he uses is is wild the orchestration is staggering i mean this is a massive orchestra isn't it you know we're talking about uh, not only full string department but full complement to win plus a third bassoon, a contra bassoon, a low bassoon. We have a full complement of brass with that third trombone. We have timps as well. And it's amazing structure. And actually, for the listener, the amount of variety is fantastic. The restatives are important because they tell us what, what has been created in each day. And they are with a forte piano. I do remember years ago performances of Haydn's creation with the harpsichord. And I'm afraid, much as we love the harpsichord in Baroque music, it, it really has no place in a work like Haydn's creation. We need the softer toned instrument of the forte piano and that colour and variety. And for you, I mean, Guy, because of course you play with that forte piano in those restatees, which are absolutely glorious. And we get to the final Adam and Eve one, and it, it's so sensuous. Yeah. It's just beautiful. It's the best. I love those. I still remember that performance seven years ago. Yeah. I'll be, I've got some more ideas, though. One or two more things with the, with those restatives as well to make them come to life even more. I can't wait. I can't wait. And this promises to be a tremendous concert event. And I'm looking forward to seeing you shortly and making music with you. And I thank you so much for being here with me again. Thank you for taking the time. It's a great pleasure, Guy. And I likewise, I can't wait to be back in Symphony Hall. It's going to be absolutely splendid. Harry Christophers is artistic director of the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at www.handelandhaydn.org slash podcast for this and previous episodes, as well as information about Harry and about Haydn's creation. I hope you'll join me for our next episode. Music